This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. The cost of living crisis shows no signs of slowing down. Interest rates have risen for a record seventh time in as many months. Inflation has hit its highest point since 1990. Real wages are falling and household incomes are shrinking. Australians all over the country are struggling to afford groceries, to pay their power bills, to simply make ends meet. Is the government doing enough? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisha about the political risks if the cost of living crisis spirals out of control. It's Friday, the 4th of November. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Mike, we've talked about the cost of living crisis on this podcast before, and this week we've had another interest rate rise. What do we know about how people are feeling? I don't know if we can put how they're feeling into any statistical measure, but we do know something more about what financial effect it's having on households, particularly this week, perhaps in the most useful form so far in the shape of a study from... The ANU, Australian National University and the Centre for Social Research and Methods, which found that average household income had fallen from almost $1,800 in February 2020 to just over $1,600 last month adjusted for inflation. So that is a pretty significant drop. It sort of puts into very stark terms, I think, what people are saying anecdotally, which is that they're feeling the cost of living pressures acutely and there's no indication that things are going to get any better anytime soon because of the interest rate rises. People are both feeling it immediately and very apprehensive about what's still to come, I think. The prediction in the budget, Lenore, was a 56% increase in energy prices over the next couple of years. Are energy prices hitting Australians hard as well? I mean, it is a really big hit. And I think in some ways, it's not the biggest part of the cost of living squeeze that people are under, but it is something that is hitting the headlines and that the government can potentially do something about. And it is also something that people are really feeling because it's something that they can sort of potentially do something about. I know we had a story this week from a single mother of three who lives in Hobart, where it obviously gets quite cold, and she said two of her kids have birthdays in November and so she ekes it out so she pays a little bit more on electricity during September and October so she can stop electricity payments in November so she's got some money to put towards her kids' birthdays. I mean, just those anecdotal stories of the very finely crafted budgeting families are having to do just to do something really basic like get their kid a birthday present and energy prices are a part of it. The government has stressed that a lot of the factors driving inflation and high energy prices are out of their control. But is there anything they can do? To some extent, it's something that they can change. I think that there is a political aspect to this as well, and we saw Chris Bowen call that out this week, that 
this debate over what they might be able to do on energy prices, and there are some levers they can pull that might make some difference to energy prices, even though the biggest factor pushing up energy prices are international factors, in particular the war in Ukraine and what that's doing to the global energy price. This debate is kind of being sucked back into the climate wars. And I think Chris Bowen called that out this week, and he was absolutely right to do that. He said the usual suspects are using this increase because of largely because of global factors to try to justify delaying or avoiding the need to decarbonize the economy which is going to actually in the long term bring prices down because you know renewables are a cheaper form of new generation and he was talking about the daily drip feed of editorials and opinion pieces in recent weeks blaming high power prices on renewables and you know right on cue this week the daily telegraph ran a front page splash headlined emission impossible and was claiming that businesses will be forced to close and slash jobs because of some of the government's energy prices but i guess what I'm thinking about at the moment is the extent to which, even if Chris Bowen and the government succeeds in nailing down those lies, the extent to which or how this whole cost of living issue is going to play out politically. Because I think when people's material well-being is changing and when they feel like their living standards are slipping and when they feel like things are getting harder, that creates quite a volatile political environment. I mean, that might sound strange to say right now because Australian politics feels quite calm at the moment, certainly in relation to the rest of the world. But I do think it bears thinking about that even when in policy terms, the government can say this cost of living rise on electricity prices is due to these factors. And that is true. In political terms, this situation can lead to volatility. And I think it's worth kind of considering. Mm. There's not much comfort to people who are struggling with power bills right now to be told that power is, you know, going to be much cheaper in 10, 15, 20 years' time. Mm. True, though, it may be be the right policy, but people don't necessarily want to hear that. What you're saying is, correct me if I'm wrong, Labor might be saying this is the reason that energy prices are going up, this is the reason inflation is going up, but people, when they're hurting, blame someone and it's usually Mm. the government? Yep, exactly. And that kind of economic anxiety can be exploited to make, you know, false claims about the economic causes of the anxiety itself, sometimes to breed resentment against other groups that, you know, might be to blame for the situation, to stoke resentment against elites, you know, the elites Mm. that are doing well when ordinary people are doing badly. And, you know, that's not entirely wrong. You know, we ran a story this week about how tax concessions for housing investors are going to cost the budget more than $20 billion a year within a decade. Obviously, that's going to overwhelmingly benefit higher income earners who can have investment properties. And in 2021, the amount of foregone revenue from negative gearing and capital gains tax was $8.5 billion. So that's 8.5 to 20. Now, that's a budget blowout if I've ever seen one. But it's not getting talked about nearly as much as the blowout from the NDIS, which is going to go up from $35 billion to $50 mm. billion by the end of the decade. So unsustainability of the NDIS is getting huge amount of airplay. The unsustainability of the housing investment tax concessions, much less airplay. So You know, the idea that some policies get more attention than others and particularly policies where there are very well-financed lobby groups to try to back them in uh, are sort of more protected, it's not entirely wrong either. Yeah. And we should also talk about the things that the government has specifically ruled out doing that I say they will not do, which is 
give some temporary short-term relief to people right at the sharp end of this crisis in the form of either a subsidy, raising the rate of job seeker, somehow capping power bills in the way that many European countries have done. Almost all the major European countries have brought in some variation of very direct assistance to people suffering from the cost of living crisis. Obviously, winter is coming in the Northern Hemisphere, so it's even more acute there than it is here. But Labor specifically ruled out doing that for fear of stoking inflation. Their positioning is not really giving people something to hold on to who mm. are suffering the most from the current acute crisis. They're not offering people anything to say, kind of out of our control. We're yeah. at the mercy of inflation. We're at the mercy of the Ukraine war. Or the floods. Or The yeah. gas, we haven't made the gas reservation. You know, the previous government didn't put in the gas reservation policy. So it's all a bit kind of we can implore the gas companies to do what we can, but if they don't, well, our hands are cut tight. I, just, I mean, that, yeah. that's, what, that's what it feels like. Yeah, Things, and I don't know that that's sustainable yeah. for if when inflation is going to remain high for, you know, a, a year and a half at least or two years and people are really feeling the pinch and food banks are being inundated with, you know, new customers and it's that hard for people, I think people give a new government the benefit of the doubt for a period and then it gets to the point where they are going to expect the government to do something. Mm. And I think the government seems to know that and they're starting to talk about a tax review or reviewing where the tax benefits go. We don't know where that's headed yet, but I really think they're going to have to think about it because I do think this is going to turn into a quite volatile political situation if they don't, even though we have a better social safety net than a lot of Western democracies and even though, you know, we've got lots of stabilisers in our system like compulsory voting and whatever, like we have a relatively calm and stable system and I'm not suggesting that that's going to change. They just think this kind of situation gets dangerous for governments quite quickly. I think you can see that in Europe as well. As Lenore says, the situation is not directly comparable, but there is very explicit talk there populist movements gaining more strength than they already have as a direct result of particularly the war in Ukraine, but the flow and effect of that in, into particularly power prices. And we've already seen in the last month elections in Sweden and Italy where far-right parties have gained an unprecedented share of power. People are very directly linking the cost of living crisis to to the rise of those parties. There are many other factors involved as well, of mm. course, but it's not this kind of fantasy, speculative, may happen some point in the future idea. It's actually happening, and that's before we even start talking about the US. Yeah, where the Democrats are likely to be punished in the midterms, and a lot of Americans are saying that a primary voting factor for them is the economy or inflation. So you can see the patterns around the world, mm. and I don't see any reason to think that we'll be immune to them. But is it just economics that is creating this volatile situation or are there other factors at play, Lenore? Um, I think there are definitely other factors at play. I was listening to Ezra Klein's podcast this week where he was talking to comparative political scientist Pippa Norris and they were looking at it through the prism of what is causing the rise of right-wing populism and whether it is fueled by cultural anxiety or economic anxiety mm. with the cost of living, et cetera. And she thinks it's fueled a lot more by cultural anxiety because some of the most affluent countries in the world who have really good welfare states like Norway and Sweden and Denmark have seen the rise of populist parties, which is true, but I would argue that economic anxiety should really be measured not by absolute wealth, 
but by the change or the perceived change in standard of living. So, mm. you know, economic anxiety happens when you feel like you're going backwards. And conversely, you know, someone in another country who in absolute terms might be doing far worse but feels like they're getting ahead might not be having economic anxiety. And I think a lot of Australians, even though they're probably by international standards quite well off, are feeling economic anxiety because they're having to cut back and because they feel like they might not be able to hand on a better standard of living to their kids than what they have. And so I'm not suggesting that there's going to be a sudden rise in right-wing populism in Australia, but I do think that that kind of economic anxiety can make politics become volatile because of the way that people feel, Mm. because of the way people feel about their circumstances. Yeah. It's not a binary, is it? The cultural and the economic anxiety. they often go together. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. However you weigh the cultural anxiety versus the economic anxiety, it's definitely not going to be good for countering populism to have people feeling economically anxious, right? You don't have to have a statistically accurate measure of which one's more important than the other to know that that's not... It's it's not not going to be great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And Brexit is a really good example of those economic and cultural anxieties in being entwined. It is, and it also shows, I think, how these things can build up over quite a long period because I think it's not really arguable that the 2008 financial crisis had a role to play in very gradually creating the conditions where... And austerity is response. And, and the response the response to it, more even more so, yeah, had it played a role in establishing the conditions where Brexit could take place along with those other cultural things. And the same is true for other upheavals. There's no doubt that economic factors on very basic levels where people feel like they're cost of living is becoming unsustainable, can lead sometimes surprisingly quickly to uh, political upheaval. Not always. Obviously, again, we want to stress, we're not saying that it's about to happen in Australia on anything like that scale, but they can be sort of bubbling under and not really appreciated at the time for the impact on people's lives and then suddenly can burst out in an unexpected political way. And we can see Peter Dutton trying to sort of capitalise on these feelings already, like in his budget speech in reply, he kept saying there's a historical pattern of Labor creating a mess in the coalition cleaning it up. Now, on power prices, for example, we know that precisely the reverse is true, but that's a complicated argument. And what comes across from that line is there's a mess and that People relate to that. They feel like there is a mess. Or he says Labor's going to phase out coal and gas before the new technology has been developed and rolled out. Now, again, not true. And to the extent that this transition is bumpy, the coalition's fault. But again, people go, yeah, wait, the energy market is a mess. You know, my power bills are going up. So economic anxiety gives an opposition party something to work with. Yeah. And something to work with which where they can deliver political points in very simplistic terms, possibly inaccurate terms, but in terms that connect with people. Now, of course, it's our job to analyse that, fact-check that, whatever, whatever, but it gives them something to work with. Mm. And even more so when the governing parties stupidly put a figure on how much they expect power prices to go down (laughs) six months before an election. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, it's back on to energy prices they have been talking, it feels like a long time since the budget, but uh, apparently it's only been a week and a half. They've been talking about 
an urgent need to do something about energy prices. But have they done anything? Do we know yet what they're going no, to do? They, no, we don't. I think it's exactly where it was the last time we discussed it. They've made a reference to the ACCC to have a look at that heads of agreement and see if it can be made compulsory and see if they can do something that will have an effective downward pressure on prices through that mechanism. They're sort of still talking up the fact that they're going to do something. They still haven't. You know, I think politically it would be in their interest to hurry this along a bit. But, mm. yeah, I'm not really in the business of giving them advice, but it feels like a vacuum that is being filled by other messages. Yeah, they just want something, hopefully something that will actually work, but there's something that they can point to to say, here's an understandable thing that we're doing to help mm. you, which is currently not there. Next, strength and poise. Okay, now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Mike, what was it for you this week? So mine is a good news story, almost the only good news story I could find this week, and it's only good news Oh, Taylor Swift, hello. It's only good news. And Alliance, because they were all fine in the end. (laughs) (laughs) It's good news for me, I want to stress, which is an extremely popular story on our website, which was headlined, Can You Stand on One Leg for 10 Seconds? Why Balance Could Be a Matter of Life and Death and How to Improve Yours. Uh, and I'm happy to report that, yes, I can stand on oh, one so this leg, is a humble legs. brag one. Well done, uh, No, no, it's just, um, it's not that I've done anything to, <laughs> you know, help my balance, but I can stand on one well leg, done, both Mike. legs for 10 seconds each. I hope you and can stand on both legs for 10 seconds. I can also stand on both <laughs> legs for 10 seconds. But, uh, yeah, so well if done. you can't do that, that's associated with an 84% heightened risk of death for any cause. So I feel like my risk of death is... Lower than it might otherwise be current, so currently. We'll see you back here next Excellent week. Excellent news, Mike. Yeah. Great. Great. But it's also it's actually a really interesting mm. piece as well, and has so been what, read the heightened death is widely. because you're going to fall over, or because no, no, I think it just points to other possible health complaints rather than yeah. <laughs> literally going to fall over. And, <laughs> But a lot of people end up, old people end up dying because they do. Mm. Lenore, what was it for you? Mine is a much more serious and very, very sad story around the death of Cassius Turvey and in particular the incredible strength and grace of his mother, Michelle, Mm. who called for calm and said that even though she was so angry and all of his friends and family were angry, they didn't want any form of violence at the rallies that were being held in the name of Cassius because violence breeds violence and she wanted calm and peace. And I just thought that the way that she has conducted herself in the middle of unimaginable grief is just amazing. Oh, yeah. It's such a sad but incredibly important story. And if you want to hear more about Cassius Turvey, there's an episode of Full Story about him, remembering him speaking to his mother in the Full Story feed from this week. Thanks very much for joining us this week, Lenore. Thanks, Gab. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Daniel Simo. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. Full Story will be back in your feeds on Monday. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.